There's a young boy, about eight years old, and he's in the garage with his dad. They're working on a car together. During the, while they're working on the engine, the dad gives the son a bolt. Says, hey, can you hang on to this? Then they continue working on the engine. And then it comes to time, it comes time, and the father asks the son, all right, all right, it's time for the bolt. And the son gets very flustered because he doesn't remember where he put it. And he, 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 just, he doesn't want to fail his dad. He doesn't want to upset his dad. So he gets flustered, just kind of freezes. And then the dad looks at the son and says, well, what are we supposed to do now? A couple days go by, and the son finds the bolt in his pocket. That's where he put it. But he's too scared to go tell his dad that. A few more days go by, and the son, uh, the boy, is at, at home, and he, he doesn't do the dishes for whatever reason. He, he forgets to do his chores. So the mom is upset for a moment, but then forgives him, understands, and forgives uh, her son. But then the father comes home from work. Clearly he's stressed. Something happened at work. He's stressed out. He goes, talks to the mom, and finds out that the, the boy didn't do his dishes. And so he comes up to his boy. They start shaking him. What is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? And the boy is terrorized and just with fear, with the onslaught. So he does the only thing he could think that could help. And so he reaches in his pocket, pulls out the ball, says, Dad, here it is. Here it is, Dad. I have it. Thinking that that was going to be what it is that will deter what's going on. A lot of times as Christians, we can be like the boy. We're going through life. We're trying to be the best father, the best mother, best child, best co-worker, best student that we can be. And there comes times in different seasons where it seems that we're just being attacked as if God is upset with us. Uh, we're, we're hearing these lies that we're rejected by God, that He is just mad at you. And in those times, we revert back to what we think best or what we know is best. We go, we put our pocket, we pull out a bolt, we say, God, here it is. I'm trying, God. I'm doing these things. I'm really trying, Lord. I want to regain this favor. And we revert back to this, this mindset of works. I need to do this. I need to do this to, to keep God happy with me. And praise God that he is not like that father at all. God's disposition towards you is not dependent on your works. It's not dependent on a changing mood of God's. But rather, God is a lot more like the mother in that situation that he quickly forgives. That our grace and our forgiveness is secured in Christ alone. And we don't have to do things in order to earn this favor and grace from God. And so when the guilt... The, the condemning lies are just directed at us, trying to convince us that we've been rejected by God, that God is upset and there's nothing we can do. Instead of reaching for the bolt, reaching for these things, of, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm doing these things, God. Look, look at this, I'm trying, I'm trying. Rather, we need to turn and take hold of the cross and of Christ, that He has finished it, He has done it. And so the account we're looking at this morning, if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, Luke chapter 7, there's two main things I want us to see here, or or what God's presented here. Number one is the absolute amazing forgiveness and grace of Christ. That's the number one, if that, that is what we should leave away with. And number two, we will see in this passage that it is from this amazing grace and forgiveness of Christ that we then respond with love. And obedience. 
So looking at it, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke picks up right where we left off last week. He says, one of the Pharisees, remember, we just finished a passage where Jesus kind of let the Pharisees have it. He goes on, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And so right from the beginning, there's this glorious truth, and that is Jesus sought and dined with all types of sinners. All types. He sought and dined with those we, we typically think of sinners, right? The tax collectors, the, the, the lepers, the drug abusers, the alcoholics. He no doubt sought them very much. We see that in Luke. But he also dined with the Pharisees, the very ones he, he yelled at this last passage. He dined with them, those that we typically write off, the hard-hearted, the stubborn, the prideful, the self-righteous, Jesus also dined with them. And not just once. Uh, Luke chapter 11, we'll see that Jesus dines with another Pharisee. Luke chapter 14, Jesus dines at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So it's not just one and done. He continues to even seek out the Pharisees, the prideful, the self-righteous. He continues to proclaim the truth to them, truth that will set them free if they receive it. He continues to, to make himself available, even though he's hated by the Pharisees. And we continue to see this growing, that they're out to get him. But we can't forget that it is, we know that some of these hard-hearted Pharisees come to know Christ. Nicodemus, if you recall, in John chapter 3, uh, the Pharisee that comes to, to Jesus at night, seemingly because he doesn't want other people to see him, he comes. Later, we see Nicodemus stand up for Jesus in John 7. And in John 19, we see that he's there at the burial of Jesus. So it seems that Nicodemus had turned to Christ. But on top of that, if no one else, the Apostle Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, he turned to Christ. And so here's the point. Right from the beginning is do not write anyone off. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the word of God the Spirit uses to to save someone. I mean, look at me. He saved me, he saved you, and we had absolutely no chance. We were lost causes, absolutely lost causes. Everyone is. But yet God saved me and he saved you. And so we're called, do not stop praying for our lost family members, our lost friends, those that we were like, There's, that's, even, that's not even a chance that's going to happen. Do not stop. And if we have not started, we need to start. Because Punishment is real. Hell is real. The seriousness of our sin is real. And may God forgive us when we do not speak up and share the truth. So right from the beginning, we see that glorious truth that Jesus sought and dined with all types of sinners. And he comes to dine with the Pharisee at his house, and it says he reclines at table. Let, let, me, let me kind of set this, this picture up. So the normal position in the ancient Near East at the time was uh, for a special meal, which this is, we'll get into, is there's this horseshoe-shaped table. And they would all, uh, with like a pillow, lean on their, their left elbow, looking towards, facing towards the table at each other with their feet going towards the outside walls. That's how they usually ate at a special, uh, special meal. Typically, at just a regular meal with the family, they'll sit. But at special meals, they'll be in that laying down position with faces towards the, the table and their feet towards the wall. 
And at these, these meals, at these special meals, like with a Sabbath or with a special teacher, as Jesus, as it seems to be the case here, the doors were wide open. It was a public meal. People could walk in. In fact, many would walk in and they would kind of go on the outside walls and just kind of listen in. They were free to listen to the conversation. Many would be on the outside listening through the window. It was open. In fact, uh, it's even uh, noted that they could even eat leftovers if they could. So it's kind of a public meal, the special meal. There's a special guest here, a teacher here. So the door's open and we see that being the case as the sinful woman her presence isn't what's yelled at here, but it's her actions, as we see in this passage. So it's this, this public meal. A special guest is here. Jesus is here. Uh, for all we know, it seems like there's probably a lot of people lining the walls, people outside listening in. And they're reclining at the table. And then a certain woman comes in. The woman is unknown to us. We don't know her name. We don't ever learn her name. But she is known as a sinner. And the, the note here by Luke is not that no one else is a sinner, but rather she's a very public sinner. Most likely uh, she was a prostitute or uh, she would have been the wife of a man who was in a very shameful occupation. But she was known as a sinner. And we're told that when she learned, she learned that Jesus was at this house, she went to Jesus. And we, uh, right from there we see this, this picture that a sinner is drawn to Christ. When we are being overwhelmed with our sin, who do we go to? We go to Christ because he can take care of it. And as Luke writes, she brings an alabaster flask of ointment. And to note here, this the word used here was for a very expensive perfume. It was not the typical olive oil that was far less expensive that they would use to, uh, to anoint people, but this was a, a special perfume that was very expensive. And what does she do? Verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So she begins weeping. First of all, it's like, why? Why is she weeping? And I would propose because of her sin. Throughout this whole passage, her sin is continually brought up. Luke identifies her as a sinner. The Pharisee identifies her as a sinner. Jesus identifies her as a sinner. It says, in fact, she's got many sins. We see it's her sin that she's weeping for. And I would propose she's weeping because of her realization of the forgiveness of her sin. Follow with me as we go through the account, and I'll kind of show why I think that. But so keep in mind that this setting with this special meal, the place is probably packed full of people at least lining the, the room and the people on the outside looking in, listening to this. And Luke makes it very clear that her actions we see described here are not hidden. They are not secret. The word for weeping here is the same word used for rain showers. This isn't like a, a, a whimpering on the side that no one can really notice, but this is significant crying. When Luke says that she she starts kissing his feet, this isn't like a quick peck before no one looks. Rather, this is the intense form. The prodigal son, when the son returns and the father kisses him, that's the word, this intense kiss. Uh, Paul with the the elders of Ephesus, when Paul leaves, knowing that he'll never see them again, and they kiss each other, the the greeting, the, the, the kiss, very intense, that's what's being described here. And so what we see here, we get this impression, the way that Luke writes this, 
is that each action took some time. This wasn't hidden. This was very clear to a whole room. She came to his feet. She wept. She began wiping his feet. She began kissing his feet. Then she began anointing his feet. This is no longer an average meal with a teacher. This is, something's going on here. It continues, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who would invite him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So the Pharisee thinks to himself that, hey, clearly Jesus must not be a prophet since he, uh, he cannot discern that this woman is a sinner. And in, if he knew he, she was, he clearly would not be allowing her to touch him like this. And we see kind of a pickup from our last passage, this excused rejection based on their, their expectations rather than the expectations of, of God's word. And it's interesting. The Pharisee is waiting for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And the Messiah who comes. And the Pharisee is doubting Jesus because he's here with this woman, allowing her to touch him. Yet, what would you expect from the one who's coming to put an end to sin, to reconcile people with God? Isaiah 53, which the Pharisee would know very well, says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressions. So God says the servant of the Messiah, he's coming. He's going to bear their iniquities. He's going to take on their sin. He's going to give them righteousness. He doesn't expect that. Would you not expect this one whose work, his mission is to be the reconciliation of sinners to God, he's coming and he's there with the sinners. The irony here is that Simon the Pharisee calls the woman uh, a sinner as if he's not, yet that, that statement itself exposes his absolute depravity and his blindness. On top of that is the irony that the Pharisee says, hey, he can't even tell that this woman, he's missing, lacking the discernment that he sees that this woman is a sinner, yet we see that Jesus knows exactly who she is and he, in fact, knows what his thoughts are. So this irony here. And Jesus says this, verse 40. And Jesus answered said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. I see a video uh, on social media shared every now and then. And every time I see it, I get really, honestly, I get convicted. It's a video, and it looks to be somewhere in Asia. Uh, you have this room, and there's different Christians kind of spread throughout, and there's two boxes in the middle of the room. And there's one person kind of opening the box. And the moment the box opens, the people swarm the boxes, just swarm it. And it reminds me of like piranhas that go after attacking something. And what are they grabbing? Is it food? Nope. Is it money? 
Nope, it's Bibles. It's a place in Asia that they do not have access to God's Word. And so the box opens and they swarm, grabbing the Bibles. You see people hugging, kissing, crying, hugging each other that they have, finally they have the words of the living God. And so I think when Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you, that God says that every day, Alex, I have something to say to you today. And we have the Word of God in our hands. And I'm afraid that I and we sometimes lose sight that we have the living words of the living God in our hands. And sometimes we don't want to open it because it says some harsh stuff that we need to change and we need to repent. But we can actually follow the Pharisee's example here when he says, say it, teacher. Let me have it, Lord. And he's got to know what's coming. It's interesting that the Pharisee uses the word teacher here as kind of a, a sign of respect. So he, the setting is kind of a, a cordial setting, um, a friendly setting. The Pharisee's having him over. Uh, he says, teacher, let, let me hear it. Which we see last passage, and we'll see multiple times, is not the case many times with Jesus and the Pharisees, where Jesus is letting them have it. But then Jesus shares what he has to say. Verse 41, he shares a parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus tells a story, a parable, two debtors, both owed money. And they have uh, denarii, which is plural for denarius, which was a common coin, um, which was worth a soldier's or a laborer's daily wage. So that's what the, the denarius, plural denarii is. And we see that one debtor owed ten times the amount of the other. We see that one owed about two months' wages, and the other owed about a year and a third wages of money to this money lender. But then there's the twist. The money lender freely forgives their debt. It would be like someone canceling our mortgage, right? Amen? That would be fantastic. We'd give the banker a kiss. And that's exactly the point here. Jesus says, which one of you would, have, would, would love the money lender more? Simon answers, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. Uh, two things just to grab from that. One, Simon knew something was coming, right? That I suppose, that addition. He knew something was coming. Uh, the, the rabbis at that time usually did tell a story like this, ask the question, and there was going to be something coming. So Simon knew that something was coming. But I think Simon the Pharisee should get some credit that he answered directly. He answered the question. We see other places uh, the Pharisees do not answer the questions because they know it will prove Jesus right. Even though Simon answers kind of cautiously and possibly grudgingly, he says, The one with the larger debt, being forgiven of more, will lead to more gratitude and love and response. And then Jesus applies it to the woman and Simon the Pharisee. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus compares the response of the woman with the Pharisee. He gave no water. She wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. And the washing of feet uh, actually was not required at these special meals. If it was, a slave would have done it, not Simon. And so Simon was not necessarily rude, but it's clear that the woman shows far more courtesy and Simon did less than he could have done. He gave no kiss, but she does not cease to kiss Jesus' feet. And the kiss here refers to a kind of a common greeting, which is still pretty uh, common in the Middle East, Latin America, Europe in some places. Simon did not give this, this kiss of a greeting, but this woman gave an abundance, a kiss of friendship on the feet. He gave no oil to anoint, the, uh, to anoint Jesus, but she anointed his feet with expensive ointment. And this and the inexpensive oil would be uh, uh, anointed on the, the heads of the guests. And it was a special courtesy. It was not required. But the woman did this, but instead with common oil, she did it with expensive perfume and anointed Jesus' feet. So the responses of both the, the Pharisee and the woman are completely different. Completely And here's the point. The woman responded out of such love and devotion because she had been forgiven. Simon had not responded with love and devotion because he had not been forgiven. Follow with me here. In the parable, God's the money lender. The debtors are are sinners and the debt is sin. And Jesus, for the sake of argument, he concedes to Simon's false perception that he's a smaller sinner than the woman is. And so he talks about Simon having less sin, less debt, and the woman having more debt, more sin, and both can be forgiven. And Jesus says that her sins have been forgiven, and that is why she's responding with so much love and so much devotion, which is exactly what the parable says. She's been forgiven much, and that is why this response is coming. And so this is important. Jesus is not at all, nor has he ever said that the woman is forgiven because of her love. That's not what he's saying at all. The grammar of the word, uh, her sins are forgiven, is made very clear that her sins have been forgiven in a past time and she has continued in a state of forgiveness. Her sins have already been forgiven. So a better translation instead of her sins are forgiven would have been her sins have been forgiven. They've been forgiven in the past and that is why she's responding with such love and devotion. Just as John writes, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4. It's the actions of Christ in forgiveness that produces the actions of love in the woman. We respond to Christ's forgiveness. The woman loves much because she's been forgiven much. Simon, comparing his actions, does not love much because he's been forgiven little or to be more clear has not been forgiven at all because he did not come to Christ. He did not confess his sin, did not come to him whom forgiveness is available. But follow with me. I don't want to jump over this. The phrase that Jesus adds, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. What good news. Anyone else? Her sins, she has many sins. I have an incredible amount of sin. And they're all gone. Thank you, Max. He knows, I guess. (laughs) But her many sins are forgiven. That means my many sins can be and are forgiven in Christ. That means your many sins that do not stop can be forgiven and are forgiven in Christ. 
Amen? Well, praise God that there's a sinner like her and then there's a sinner like me. And Jesus, remember this, he's saying this to Simon the Pharisee, almost seemingly defending the woman to Simon's condemnation. Kind of saying, Simon, her sins are forgiven. Stop condemning her for past sin. It's done. It's been taken care of. And then Jesus adds this statement at the end. He says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. But he is forgiven little loves little. And this is directly aimed at Simon the Pharisee. It's rhetorical. It's clearly rhetorical. The Pharisee thinks he only needs a little help, only a little bit of forgiveness, because he's not as big of a sinner as she is. Therefore, he has loved little. But I want to bring this to us. Bring this home to you and me. Jesus is using this parable to expose Simon the Pharisee and to commend the woman. He is not saying, he is not saying that those Christians who have sinned little don't love Jesus much. That's not all. That's, see, that's a, exactly not the point because we have all sinned much. We have sinned unceasingly. But this is the principle. It is not how much you've, you've committed of sin, but how much sin that you have confessed and admitted. Follow me here. If you're believing right now in Jesus, your sins are absolutely forgiven. But is your lack of confession and lack of realization of how sinful you are that limits how much you respond to God and love and devotion? It is not greater the sin, the greater the gratitude and love that you respond with, but rather it's the greater your awareness and recognition of sin that is forgiven that is greater than gratitude and love response. If you agree with Scripture of the very depths of your depravity, the absolute evil of your sin, the majestic holiness of God, and see your sin forgiven by God, you will love Him much. You will absolutely love Him. So to the degree... To the degree of your understanding of your sin and depravity and God's holiness and justice will be the degree of your love and devotion to him. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, I've really been struggling with loving God. And I'm not talking about a, a feeling, but obeying God, wanting to learn more of Christ, wanting, desiring to read his word, wanting to, to follow God. If you're struggling with that, you've lost that desire Gaze upon the cross. Gaze upon the cross of Christ. And do not stop gazing until you see how despicable and evil your sin really is to God. How horrible and offensive it is that we deserve nothing but to be punished for eternity. And do not take your eyes off the cross until you see the holiness, the absolute purity and holiness of God that God himself would even send his son and pour out his wrath on his son because of our sin. And do not take your eyes off until you see, to see all that fall to your ground broken by your sin and cower at the fear of the holiness of God and then are lifted up in love and forgiveness and grace of the bottomless amount of God's grace and love and his complete forgiveness he gives. Your love for God will be a direct, direct proportion to your conviction of your need. 
Your love for God will be in direct proportion to your conviction of your need. Her sins were many and she was forgiving much and she loved much. And the one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who doesn't realize how much he has been forgiven will not love much. And then Jesus ends this passage reaffirming the forgiveness of the sins of this woman. Look at this, verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. How many times will he say this? Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And again, the grammar shows that your sins have been forgiven in the past and it continues. And there's three quick things I want to show from this. Number one, Jesus does not say your sins are no big deal. We'll just bypass them. He does not say that. In fact, Jesus utters these words to this woman as he looks ahead towards the cross that he'll have to endure for her sin. He says those words as he's looking to the cross. Number two, it's done. It is finished. Your sin has been taken care of. It is done. God will never bring those sin back up and throw it in your face. You never will. Because that sin was brought up and thrown in the face of Christ on the cross. It's no longer on you, it's on Him. And Jesus has taken care of it. And number three, some may condemn you, like Simon the Pharisee. The world will continue to tell you how you're a horrible person for speaking the truth. You're such a hater. Uh, friends, even uh, family members, even church family members will kind of talk down to you that you're less than, that you are, that you are less of a Christian because you are, are, are a horrible sinner and that can wear on us. But it's in Christ that we are forgiven. Jesus stands up for the woman against Simon and he stands up for us. And so we see that this woman is reassured before this crowd, most like a crowd in this room and outside of the room. Jesus reassures the woman, just as Theophilus, that Lucas right to probably needs to be assured, and probably you do this morning as well, that your sins are forgiven, completely cleansed in Christ. And once again, we see the Pharisees ask, who is this that he even forgives sin? We saw this back in chapter 5 with the paralytic that was healed, that Jesus said that he, he's forgiven his sins, and they freaked out. What are you talking about? Who is this? Because they understood that only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. He's claiming to be God clearly. And the Pharisees understood that. Who is this? It's a, it's a question of outrage. It's not an actual uh, question, uh, a genuine question. They're outraged. Who is this? Who does he think he is that he can claim to be like God and forgive sin? And Jesus says to her, in line with everything that we've seen so far, your faith has saved you. It is your faith that saved you. It's her faith that she has been forgiven, and that's from that she responds our love and devotion. Ephesians 2 eight that we a lot of us may have memorized, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works that no one may boast. Paul is just beating a dead horse here. It is not because of you. It is not. It is not. It is not. It's because of God alone. It is His grace alone. It is His gift alone. Then he ends with a command. Look at this. Ends with this command. The last words. Go in peace. This is an actual command. Tells the woman, go in peace. You can depart with a sense of security. 
You can know, leave knowing that you're accepted by God. So we too, Christians, we can leave this morning, go into our week this week, knowing that we have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. Romans 5.1, I love this verse. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ. And if our flesh and Satan tries to wiggle around that, it continues to condemn us and to, to make us feel rejected and shame. Paul goes on, Romans 8.1, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can go in peace that we'll never again experience the wrath of God because of your sin. We can go in peace knowing that. His disposition towards you will forever, Christian, be gracious and loving, not because of you at all, but because of Christ. When you sin, God calls you to confess and to repent. When you sin, he doesn't want you saying, oh man, I messed up. My father's going to kill me. Rather, he wants you as his child to, when you sin, oh man, I messed up. I need to go tell my dad. He'll take care of this. There's that song that says, Jesus, a friend of sinners. And he indeed is a friend of sinners. Not only is it through Jesus alone that our sins are forgiven, but he reminds us through his spirit. He encourages us continues to, to remind us that we're forgiven Christ. On top of that, Romans 8.34, Jesus, right now, as we sit here, is interceding for us. Romans 8.34, Jesus is interceding for you. He's at the right hand of God, interceding. On top of that, John says in 1 John, even if you sin as a believer, you have an advocate with the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. On top of that, who will bring any charge against you? It's God who's justified you. The one they bring a charge to about you is the one who justified you through faith in Christ. So we can indeed go in peace like the woman. It is they who know their faith, that have faith and are saved, may go in peace. They who think that some part of their salvation is based on their performance, they may not be able to go in peace. There's always that, that question of unshakiness. But if we grasp the depth of our depravity, the evil of our sin, if we grasp the absolute finished and holy, complete and forever cleansing work of Christ, if we grasp that we appropriate this atonement of our sin for ourselves through faith alone and not our works, we are then able indeed to go in peace. And I can imagine, after hearing this command, go in peace, we can walk away singing to ourselves a hymn such as this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So this morning, if you are here and it feels like you're being attacked, 
that this guilt, this condemnation continues just to be overwhelming you. And it feels like you're being shaken. What is wrong with you? How can you do this? Instead of reaching your pocket, trying to grab the bolts of your actions or trying to respond, well, I'm trying this. I'm doing this, God. Rather, turn to the cross and grab hold of the cross. It is finished. This has never been about me. It's about Christ, what he's done. And if you're here this morning and you bring your past full of sin and you've never come to Christ, there is forgiveness in Christ alone. Forgiveness is absolutely inseparable from Jesus Christ. Come to him this morning. Trust in him alone. And if you're here this morning and you've just feel this loss of any kind of desire to follow Christ, you've lost the desire to learn more of Christ, to follow and obey God, run back to the cross. See the absolute amazing love and grace that he would love you and forgive you, a sinner with so much sin that's so offensive, but he would love you enough to do that. And then when we understand and fully grasp the depravity, the evil of our sin, the absolute final finished work of Christ on the cross, and how we are completely accepted based on Christ's performance, which was perfect alone, we will cannot help but help to continue to love and follow Christ. So that this morning, may we leave with the echo in our ears, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. And may we continue to walk with the cross in front of us. Pray with me. Father, oh Lord, how glorious is your forgiveness. And Lord, how much we need to be reminded each day, each hour, God, that we are forgiven in you. Lord, as we go out this week, and Lord, we know that our flesh, the world, um, Satan and his demons are just ready to hammer at us, to remind us of this past sin that is just constantly in our, in our minds, what we've done to people, how we've hurt people. Lord, God, may we respond, not by trying to do more works, but respond by turning to the cross, that it is finished, it is done in Christ alone. Jesus has paid it. We are free to go. We can go in peace. Help us this this morning, Lord, this week. Amen.